Hello, I could just try, wait a minute, am I on? Okay, there we go. Good morning, my name is Jared Lawson. I'm not the normal preacher if you're new, don't worry, this doesn't happen every week. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn like Mike read the first Corinthians six. We'll be finishing up that chapter. Uh, so uh, my wife and I several years ago went to seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. We lived right on the border of uh, North and South Carolina. So we got a real sense of the Carolinas. And uh, during that time, uh, my closest friend, uh, besides my wife, of course, uh, Brett Metzler visited us. He's very close friends with my wife as well. So we wanted, we were excited that Brett was visiting. We finished all our schoolwork early. And so we decided we're going to have fun with Brett. He was there for uh, a few days. And we lived uh, just a few miles away from basically the North Carolina equivalent of Six Flags called Carowinds. Cool name. Uh, and so it was uh, half theme park, half water park. And so we thought, Brett's here. Let's go all out. Let's do both. Okay, I haven't been to a water park since I was a kid. Here's what we'll do. We'll go in. We'll do all the whole water park thing for half the day. We'll dry off. We'll do the theme park thing for the rest of the day. It will be a great time, a great celebration. Shall we, so we go. We walk through the park. We go uh, into the, the water park area, go to the bathroom, change into our swimsuits. That was the first kind of red flag. The bathroom smelled kind of like throw up because there was throw up everywhere. Uh, and so we come out. And as we're walking into the park, I'm starting to realize something is wrong. Something's missing here. And I'm starting to notice that everyone I'm seeing is a kid. You know, they're like 12. And every adult that's there has a kid with them. And so we're realizing, uh, I'm very out of place here. I'm an adult with no kids. Feel really creepy right now. So I asked my wife, can we please leave? I'm so uncomfortable. Can we just go do roller coasters or something like that. And she's like, no, we've already been through the puke bathrooms. We're going to keep going. We're going to enjoy this. I'm like, fine. So we go to the wave pool. I remember that being fun as a kid. And, you know, we're floating and there's kids all around us. We're like, this is, you know, a little uncomfortable, but we'll try to enjoy it. And then I feel, you know, warm water go across my legs. And I'm like, that's, uh, that's, that's urine. I'm feeling pee from one of these kids. They were just peeing on me. So we're like, okay. We'll do the water slides. Those are fun. So we're standing in line. You go up the big ladder and go down the water slide, and I'm feeling things hit my head and shoulders, and I look up, and North Carolina kids are just spitting on us, because that's what you do when you're 11, and there's creepy adults there in your territory. So it was uh, horrible, but what I realized, kind of as I was processing this traumatic event, was that nothing about the water park had changed. They had Lazy River, they had the wave pool, they had the slides, they had everything. What had changed was us. Something radically had changed about me. I had gone from being a kid to being an adult. My identity had somewhat changed and therefore I didn't feel uh, uh, you know, like I existed in the right place anymore. So all of a sudden the space that I had been in years before became very strange, very foreign to me. Shouldn't go back there unless, I mean I have kids now so I guess it would be less creepy. But I mention all that to say, uh, today, in, uh, as we look at 1 Corinthians, uh, shocker, the Corinthians are doing some pretty messed up stuff uh, that Paul's having to address. What they're doing is they are, uh, they're taking their freedom in Christ and they're abusing it. They're using it towards sin. So they're thinking, I'm so free in Christ. They have such a misunderstanding of grace that they're actually sleeping with uh, temple prostitutes. 
Uh, in their day, there was, you know, there'd be great big festivals in, the, in these pagan temples where there'd be uh, all this food brought out, these big feasts. Paul will deal with that later as we look at food offered to idols later in 1 Corinthians. And then prostitutes would be brought in uh, and they would, people would sleep with them in this great celebration and the, the Corinthian Christians are taking part in this. And so Paul is having to address this. That's what we're gonna look at today. Paul responding to this. And his response might, uh, you know, be a little shocking to us. We might think he would just yell at them and think, what's wrong with you? You're clearly breaking the Christian rules here. I mean, prostitution and, and not, you know, sleeping with prostitutes should be, uh, you know, at the top of the list. But what he actually says might surprise you. He doesn't just yell at them for breaking the rules. What he does is he says, you've forgotten your identity as a Christian. You've forgotten who you are. You don't belong there anymore, like me in the water park, right? Something about you has radically changed when you came to Jesus Christ, when you received the gospel. Something about your heart has radically changed. And so what he's actually gonna do to call them away from their sin is he's gonna point to their identity and he's gonna point to three main things we're gonna look at. The reality of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, their union with Christ, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Those three core things of the Christian identity he's gonna point to and say this is what calls you away from sin. So let me pray and then we will look at verse 12. Father, we love you. Uh, We thank you that the gospel from the get-go never says, when you've cleaned yourself up, come to the Lord and we'll see how it goes, but rather, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, not so that we might uh, be cleaned up for the rest of our lives, but the same God who saves us is still the same God who sanctifies us. And so I pray as we look at your scriptures here, uh, that weighs heavy on us, the reality that even as we have been transformed when we walk in sin, we don't have to get resaved or anything like that. Rather, we run to a Savior who has already finished the work. I pray that your spirit would minister that to our hearts here. In your name, Jesus, amen. Okay, let's look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one with the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So we're gonna have to do a lot of text work today. Uh, every commentator I read said, you know, this, these are some of the most difficult uh, passages in the entire New Testament to, to interpret, to think through. One of the main reasons for that is we have to see who's saying what. Is Paul saying all of this? Is he responding to the Corinthians, things like that? In, in Greek, right, the, the language this letter is written in, you have no punctuation, so you don't have quotation marks. Everything's in capital letters and there's no spacing. So thank you for you know, whoever invented quotation marks uh, who's probably watching the sermon right now. So one of the things your translators and editors have to do who have edited the ESV that you're holding in your hands, they are trying to figure out who is saying what. So they've added those quotation marks to try and help us out. If you wanna know more about that, uh, we have tons of lectures on uh, textual criticism and things like that in our theological equipping classes. Uh, email us, I'll be, we'll be happy to send those to you. But Essentially what's happening here, when Paul is writing this letter of 1 Corinthians, he's responding to two things. One, he's getting a report from Chloe's people. We saw that in chapter one, for as it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. So there's this uh, you know, verbal report that's been brought to Paul. And so he's writing 1 Corinthians. And then the second thing is the Corinthians themselves have written Paul a letter. 
And Paul is reading this and responding. We'll see that uh, next week, actually, in chapter seven. Now concerning uh, the matters of which you wrote to me. So Paul, as he's writing 1 Corinthians, has that Corinthian letter next to him. And in our passage like today, he's gonna quote them. He's gonna do this all throughout the letter, actually, and say, you're saying this, here's my response to that. So I actually made a slide for you. If you work for ESV, the next study Bible, I mean, Think about this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very skilled. Uh, I made this slide to make it somewhat easier for you. Paul is essentially saying, you say, O Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, but I say, not all things are helpful. You say, O Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, but I say, I will not be dominated by anything. You say, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. But I say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you see that. You see he's, he's quoting them, responding, quoting them, responding, quoting them, responding. So that's what those quotes are there in, in your Bibles. We'll talk about verse 13 uh, in, in just a second. But let's look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, O Corinthians, you say, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. I will not be dominated by anything. So he's, he's, what the Corinthians are doing here is they're giving a defense for their sin. And they're using these kind of quotes of their day. You know, it's kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas or when in Rome, do as the Romans do, things like that. They're using these quotes to defend their sin. And Paul is responding, pointing out the foolishness of their quotes. So that's the first thing we need to see. Paul is not agreeing with them. Paul is not agreeing with their quotes. Christians misunderstand this all the time. You'll hear Christians say, you know, all things are lawful, but just maybe, you know, not all things are helpful. I can do anything, but it might not be that wise. You'll see it used kind of for uh, abuse of grace, licentiousness, but you also see it a lot for legalism. You hear tons of Christians, especially with things like alcohol, things like that. Sure, alcohol might be allowed, but is it the wisest? All things are lawful, but not all things are, are permissible. We heard that a lot when we <laughs> roll that wine in communion. Uh, that is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul Paul is not agreeing with them. That's, that's completely taking the verse out of context. Rather, Paul is correcting their arrogant sin. So here is how he corrects them. Notice he corrects them in two ways. You say, O Corinthians, you're so free that you can do anything in Christ, but first of all, what you're doing isn't even good for you. It's not even helpful for you. And two, what you're doing with your so-called freedom has actually enslaved you. These sins that you were supposed to master have actually mastered you, they've actually enslaved you. It doesn't really come across in the English, but in the Greek there's a a play on words there with you're being dominated. You're using your freedom to basically submit yourself to these sins. And one of the things that the Corinthians are massively, drastically misunderstanding about freedom is the same thing our culture misunderstands about freedom. We think freedom is uh, you know, the ability to do whatever we want, right? There's no external restraints, you know, keeping us from doing things. Give me liberty or give me death. We're Americans after all. You tax our tea, we're going to war, which it's funny, does anybody even drink tea anymore? That's funny that that's what made us so upset. I guess we were very British back then. But no external restraints, like no closed off options. That's what true freedom is. That's what our American hearts, you know, beat with. That's true freedom. The Bible is going to tell us time and time again that is not true freedom. First of all, there's tons of things that God isn't free to do by that definition. He can't lie, he can't cease to be God. God, the freest being in all the universe, uh, isn't free in that way, can't go against his nature and things like that. In fact, St. Augustine, 1700 years ago, argued that the ability to do whatever you want is not true freedom at all. You know what is true freedom? Being a slave to the right master. 
True freedom is not I can do whatever I want, rather it's you're a slave to sin, right? You see, he gets this from Paul. You're a slave to sin and you don't, you know, stop being a slave to sin and then you can just go do whatever you want like the Corinthians think. Rather, you're a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to the right master. I can only follow the God of all goodness, the God of all love. It's being a slave to the right master. Again, he gets this from Paul, Romans 6, 17 through 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin. There's, there's the freedom. You've set free from sin to what? And have become slaves to righteousness. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote uh, a hymn, very famous hymn, And Can It Be? And this is my favorite line, uh, kind of along the same thing. Long my spirit, uh, imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Notice he doesn't say, my chains fell off. I was free. I went out and did whatever I want. I followed the risen Christ. Even in heaven, think about, you know, glory. New heavens and new earth. When you're free to do whatever you want, you won't be able to sin. You won't be able to cry, right? He's, he's wiped away every tear. At least, you know, cry from pain or suffering or something like that. You won't be free to rebel against God. You'll just be beholding his glory, worshiping him in all joy and all glory for all of eternity, right? Even in heaven, you don't have the American definition of freedom. So the Corinthians are drastically misunderstanding this. And Paul is saying, you're using this so-called freedom to just make yourself a slave. Instead of overcoming it, you've let it overcome you. So that's the first thing Paul's gonna say uh, against the Corinthians, and then look at verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach. This is the Corinthian quote. You say food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both, one with the other. But I say the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, so we're gonna do text correction again. If you're holding an ESV, you'll notice they put the quotes, they, they finished the Corinthian quote right after food. So the Corinthians uh, are saying food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and then Paul is saying, and God will destroy them both. Most scholars actually will say that the Corinthian quote ends after and the other, where I've underlined it, there you go. Again, you're welcome, super helpful. Uh, that's the full Corinthian quote. If, if the quote goes after food, uh, then Paul's just kind of giving a random wrath. You know, you think you can do whatever you want, but God's gonna destroy you. It doesn't really fit the context. But again, as, as most think, the, the quote goes all the way to and the other. Essentially what the Corinthians are saying here is they have this kind of proto-gnostic uh, false view of, of what it means to be a person. That people are souls, the essence of who you are is a soul basically trapped in a body. And so what they're saying is food is meant for stomach, right? You have a stomach to receive food uh, and, and that's what food is meant to, it's meant to be eaten. That's why they exist. And God's gonna destroy them both anyway. So what are they saying in the context of sexual morality? Sex organs are meant for sex and sex for sex organs and the body doesn't matter. God's gonna destroy it anyway. You know, what's, what's the big deal, right? They have this false view of what it means to be a person. You're just kind of, you know, a soul trapped inside a body that comes from uh, pagan Greek uh, religion, comes from Gnosticism, things like that. That's not a biblical idea. It's, a, it's very, again, very popular in our culture where your literal biology doesn't determine what you are, your inner feelings do, right? I can say I'm a woman trapped in a man's body and even if biology denies that, doesn't matter, I, I feel it on the inside and, before you laugh, uh, evangelicals have uh, this view of what it means to be a person most of the time. When you hear people talk about the gospel, what is it? You'll die, you'll go to heaven, and then they stop talking, right? 
I'll fly away, oh glory. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. This idea of our soul finally is released from this body prison. Most funerals I've been to, that's, that's what I hear if you hang around by the casket, like weird people like me apparently do in this analogy. You'll hear a lot of the time that person's finally free of that wretched body. That is not the biblical definition of what a person is, that your soul and body, that's gonna be Paul's first uh, correction. Look at his response. First of all, you're not a soul trapped in a body. Rather, your whole person, your soul and body belongs to the Lord, right? The body is not meant for sexual morality. It's not yours to do whatever you want with, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You're not just a soul in a skin suit. Rather, most importantly, we see next, that body of yours that you think doesn't matter is going to be raised one day. The hope that the scriptures point to over and over and over again is the resurrection of the body. We'll see a whole chapter uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when we look at this over and over and over again. We see there in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise you up by his power. Here's what Paul is saying. You have completely misunderstood the hope of your body. You're not a soul imprisoned here. The body that you're just using for sin, the Lord has redeemed. And when it goes in the ground, your greatest hope, the greatest hope at every funeral you go to, is that one day that body will be raised in the same way that Christ was raised. And it will be glorified. And you will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Don't skip over that. In a physical, you know, God reestablishing the Garden of Eden. We're not going to this, you know, uh, floating place up in the sky. Read Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man the new heavens and the new earth. You're not souls just escaping a body. In fact, the great hope is the Christian resurrection. That's the first piece, that's the first identity piece that Paul is going to point to. Again, here's here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at this, I guess, in a few months. As for an Adam, all die. Spoiler alert, we're all gonna die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection is described as the first fruits, the first taste of all that those who belong to him, believers, Christians, will experience one day. Your resurrection is as sure as Christ's own resurrection. That is the hope that the scriptures are going to give Christians about their future. So Paul is saying, don't just say, you know, the body is, is ours to do whatever we want. What does it matter? God's gonna destroy it anyway. That is the core of the Christian hope that in death, the, the sure reality that everyone will experience in this world, there is victory for those who are in Christ. In the same way that he was raised, we will also be raised. That's the first thing he's gonna point to, the reality of the resurrection. Why should you not use your body for sin? That body is going to be raised and glorified one day and you will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with your God. That's the first reason you shouldn't engage in sexual immorality and sin. The second reason, we'll look at in verse 15, that you should engage in sin is your union with Christ. Your union with Christ. He's gonna actually point to three things, that we're members of Christ's body, our marriage to the Lord, he alludes to this, and then that we are in one spirit with the Lord. Look at verse 15. Or do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. That first phrase, do you not know, is a way of him. Remember, Paul's been with the Corinthian church for over a year. When he planted there, he stayed there for, for quite some time. God actually tells him, don't leave. You know, I have many people in this city. 
And so Paul's saying, I've taught you these things. Do you not know? It's kind of showing his increasing frustration. Have you lost your mind, is a, in a sense, is what he's saying. Do you not know that your bodies, these things you're using to go sin, are members of Christ? That your bodies are members of Christ. When you become a Christian, it is not only a status change, as if God's just kind of filled out the paperwork. You're a sinner, then he saves you, and now you're a saint. Rather, the Bible describes us being brought into this fellowship with the living God where you're united to the son. You are made a son and a daughter of God because you've been united to the true son of God. Or to say it another way, uh, you now become righteous. Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. You become righteous when you are united to the righteous one. That's why Paul says over and over again, in Christ. You ever notice that? Read your New Testament and highlight every time you see the word in Christ. It's Paul's favorite phrase by far, this idea of our union with Christ. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, behold, the new has come, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And so this first image of that unity, he says, we're members of Christ's body. Do you not know that you're members of Christ's body? How does Jesus, when he appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul's great conversion, how does, what does Jesus say to him? Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, uh, why do you persecute me? As Paul has been killing Christians, dragging them, putting them in prison, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He says, why do you persecute me? You see that closeness, you're members of his body. How does Paul even describe his own salvation in Galatians? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I, er, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's your identity. And so what Paul's going to say is, because you've been united to Christ, How unthinkable is sexual sin, especially using your body for sexual sin? Verse 15, shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, never. There's a video that made the rounds uh, a couple weeks ago if you're, you know, if you follow Twitter closely, uh, of like there was a, a, a ditch and a sheep was stuck in a ditch and its legs were sticking out and it was real deep. Those of you who are giggling saw it. And a guy or a boy comes and is grabbing its leg and pulling it out and finally gets it out. And the sheep in its, you know, excitement goes and jumps and then literally after being out of the ditch for three seconds, dives headfirst right back in and the boy kind of rolls his eyes and goes over. And so when you watch that, one, it's funny, but you think, one, how dumb is the sheep? You're starting to see why, you know, we're always called sheep in the scriptures, this idea of we just dive headfirst right back into our sin. The second thing, that at least I thought, was how annoying, how offensive to the, the boy, the savior of the sheep. That's similar to what Paul's getting at here. Because of your identity, because you've been so closely united to Christ, that is why these sins are so offensive. It's not just that you're running to something that's evil, it's that you're running away from something that's so glorious. Fellowship, unity with the living God, that's what you're running away from. It's it's specifically because of your identity that makes this sin so unthinkable to Paul. Verse 16, or do you not know, there it is again, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So when you walk in sexual sin, what Paul is saying is one, you're you're breaking God's design for marriage. He's quoting Genesis here. When Adam finally sees Eve and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the two will become one flesh. 
God's design for marriage is that sex would be the beautiful consummation of this unity. And, and instead of that unity being preserved, it's being completely torn apart by the Corinthians. But it's not just a tearing apart of marriage. We don't know who all in the Corinthian church is even married. It's tearing apart really at the marriage between Christ and his bride. Paul will say in Ephesians 5, uh, do you not know, or, or the, the beautiful mystery of marriage here between man and woman points to the profound uh, ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. Even in Revelation, we see eternity described as the marriage supper of the lamb, this beautiful image of marriage. So Paul again is saying, sex is not just this casual thing. You, You can use your bodies to do whatever you want. Rather, it's adultery against your identity. You've been united to Christ, you are his bride yet you're using your bodies for sexual sin, sin in general, but of course, sexual sin in this context. And then verse 17, as he gives his final image, but, uh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Jesus, when he saves you, doesn't simply just say, you know, I saved you, good. When you get to the pearly gates, give him my name, it'll let you right in. Rather, he gives you his spirit. He gives uh, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within you. Paul, again, in Ephesians 1 says this, in him, again, there it is, in Christ, in him, Paul's favorite phrase, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The same spirit that sanctifies you The same spirit that convicts you of sin is the same spirit that unites you inseparably with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, you'll see in the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 14 all the way through 17, one of the main things Jesus is telling his disciples in their kind of last meal together before he's gonna go to the cross is I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna die, I'll be raised, I'll ascend into heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you, all these, all these passages that we know. But one of the primary things he says is, I'm sending you my spirit as a guarantee that I will be with you always. The helper who will guide you, bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. The way we know, though Jesus is, is at the right hand of the Father, he's ascended into heaven. The way we know he hasn't left us as orphans is because the spirit has sealed us as a guarantee of our union with him. So all of this, again, are just these images Paul is given, giving to say, when you sin, you're not just breaking a rule. It's not just moralism. Rather, you're denying the reality of the gospel. You're denying who Jesus Christ has made you to be. When you take your, your body, your person, that's meant to be united to Christ and you unite it to a prostitute, you're denying the union that you've been brought into. That's what's particularly offensive about this sin. Now, I would imagine uh, no one here, uh, that, that those of you who are married, entered into a marriage because you were thinking, you know what, I would like some more rules in my life. Uh, I'm only providing for myself. I would like to provide for another. That'd be helpful. Uh, I would like to, you know, be faithful to one person when they get sick or when they're healthy. I would like to take care of them. You know, like Zach said a couple weeks ago, when I order fries for myself, I would like someone to take those fries away from me. I would imagine that's why, that's not why any of you entered into marriage. I would imagine it was because you said, I want to share my life with this person. I want to enjoy this person. I want to know, fall in love with, lay down my life for this person. And if you came to Jesus Christ for any other reason than to have him, 
you will never, ever, ever be able to defeat sin. You'll never be able to wrestle against sin. Here's what you'll do. You'll follow moralistic rules. You'll fail. You'll feel shame that you haven't measured up. And instead of running to a savior, you'll think, I'll just clean myself off. Then I go to God. Then you'll fail again. And you see this cycle will happen over and over and over again. And you'll be stuck. Uh, Jeff has, has given this uh, story several times, but I'll, I'll tell it again. There's uh, the old uh, Greek pagan mythology of the sirens, these, uh, these creatures that were, lived on an island and as uh, sailors passed by, they would sing these beautiful songs and they would so intoxicate the sailors, they would sail to their island and then uh, thinking they're gonna see something beautiful and they would kill them, they would be killed. And so we have these two stories of these different approaches to getting past the sirens. The first is a man named Odysseus who knows he's sailing home, he's gonna sail past the sirens, and so he says, here's what we'll do. I'll plug the ears of all of the people actually rowing, before they had motors uh, in in Greece. Uh, All the people rowing, I'll plug their ears, and I will tie myself to the mast. And so I'll hear it, but I won't be able to do anything, and I'll tell everybody, no matter what I say, don't listen to me, just keep rowing. And so they go, and the, the people are rowing, and they can't hear the song of the sirens, but Odysseus can, and he's screaming. And he's saying, take us to the sirens. Whatever you, he's doing whatever he can to try and get there, but because of his plan, they sail by safely, but he tries to white knuckle it. And there's another story of a man named Orpheus who comes and as they're sailing by, he doesn't plug the ears of the soldiers. So they hear the song of the sirens and they start furiously paddling to the island as fast as they can to get to the sirens. And Orpheus simply takes out his harp and plays a more beautiful song. And because he plays a more beautiful song, it drowns out the beautiful song of the sirens and they sail to safety. Their uh, sailors are no longer intoxicated by the song of the sirens because they hear the more beautiful song. And similarly with fighting sin, the only way to actually resist sin is to see the greater beauty of the one you've been united to. To see the greater beauty of the Jesus that you've been brought to and united to. Uh, I have a huge sweet tooth, Uh, so it doesn't have to be like quality stuff, like whenever, you know, we're making s'mores with kids, I'm always like taking extra Hershey, you know, the kids are like, we're out of chocolate, I'm like, I don't know what happened, someone must have dropped it. So I'm just eating, you know, I love love chocolates, and then uh, I I married a Norwegian who's, my in-laws now from Norway send care packages and they have Norwegian chocolate inside. It's usually melted because of the long journey over the Atlantic, so we have to put it in the freezer. But anyway, it's great. It is the way God intended when, it is the chocolate of the Garden of Eden. It's the way God originally created it. Uh, And so I became obsessed over the years and it was just waiting. I would just wait for my wife's birthday so that I could steal all of her chocolate presents for myself. Uh, But over time, what I noticed is if there was a Hershey bar around, the next time we're making s'mores with my kids, I, I genuinely don't want it anymore. It tastes gross to me because I've had the, the better things so often. And then I you know, look up online Hershey's content and it's like the Mr. Hershey went to the health people and said, how much chocolate do we have to put in here for it to be legal? And they said, 3%, not cool. The rest of it is just like rat pellets or something, right? And that's why. But it wasn't until I had the greater thing that I realized Hershey's is bad, right? Uh, so again, that's that same, that same idea. Is until you see the beauty of Jesus Christ, you see, until you see the beauty of your Christian identity, the one you've been united to, you'll never be able to really resist sin. The greatest meal you've ever tasted, 
the most beautiful landscape you've ever laid eyes on, the most beautiful notes you've ever heard with your ears, is, is, but the first taste, it's a drop in the ocean of what you will experience for all of eternity when you see him face to face. The way of overcoming sin is seeing the greater beauty of the one you've been united to. When you won't just see something beautiful, you will know beauty himself. That's Paul's point in pointing to their identity, tasting and seeing the sweetness of their savior that they've been united to. That's the second uh, idea that calls you away from sin, that element of your identity, your union with Christ. And then thirdly, we see verse 18 through 20, the indwelling Holy Spirit. The final piece of your identity is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Here's where we see the first command. Flee sexual immorality. Uh, a couple weeks ago, actually the last time I preached, uh, we talked about one of, the, one of the things about sin that makes it so dangerous is it has a way of intoxicating you. It has a way of blind, similar to the sirens, uh, a way of drawing you in to think you're going after something that's good for you, but in reality it, it will kill you. And here there's another element of sin that uh, makes it so incredibly dangerous. Sin has a way of convincing you it's not that big of a deal. You can manage this, you don't need to kill. I mean, look around, there's way worse sinners than you, it's not that bad, you know, you don't need to, to get rid of this. In fact, if you wanted to, you could at any time, that's how sin talks. You don't need to kill me, you, you, can, you can if you wanted to, but you can do that later, right? Anything to hang around. It's kind of like when you see celebrities or maybe you have rich friends who have like really exotic animals as pets. They have tigers or lions or a chimpanzee or something like that or an anaconda or whatever. And you're like, this, this seems wrong, this seems unsafe. And they give you like a, no, this tiger is fine. You've just been watching too much Discovery Channel tigers, this one's okay. Then two weeks later you see like, tiger mauls person and kills them who is having it as a pet or anaconda swallows owner whole or whatever. Monkey rips face off of lady, right? That, and you're like, I knew it, I said it. Right, that's similar what, what sin does. It has this idea of, you know, the tiger convinces you it's a house cat. I'm fine, I'm not gonna do anything. You just keep me around, don't worry. You'll manage, you'll be able to manage this. Uh, I've been recently, uh, over the past year, rereading uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books. Uh, and so one of the things I've noticed, you, you get a sense of you've seen the movies, but you, you get a, a better sense of you've read the books. One of the things I've noticed is that the ring, the ring of power, uh, anyone who tries to use it, people try to use it for good and bad. There's good characters who will say, I wanna use it to actually defeat the enemy. Why can't I use this ring of power? I'll defeat the enemy and then I'll get rid of it. You know, it, it itself is bad, but it'll give us enough power. And then there's evil people who will say, you know, I'll use it to conquer the world, things like that. And every single person that tries to master it, it masters them. Every person that thinks I can do this, I can just use it for a time, for a greater purpose, and then I'll get rid of it. it, it kills them, it leads to their death, or it totally corrupts them to where they're not even recognizable as humans anymore. Now, some of you purists, some of you good students are like, wait a minute, Tom Bombadil, <laughs> he put it on, nothing happened, so there you go, bad analogy. Listen to my sermon, okay? I said, those who try and use it for their own purpose. Tom Bombadil was just playing around with it, you know, be quiet, quit ruining my sermon. So, the only people in Lord of the Rings uh, that resist it are those who say, don't even bring it near me. Don't bring it near me. I don't want the temptation. I don't want to even know what I'm capable of if I had it. Don't bring it near me. I don't want to carry it. I don't want to help with it. Keep it away from me. That's the image Paul's giving here. Don't try and manage sin. What is Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife in Genesis when she grabs him and says, lie with me? 
he flees. He doesn't say, this is a bad idea, you're my boss's wife, you know, I don't think we'll be able to, he runs away, naked, right? He leaves his clothes, right? Flee sexual morality, flee sin. That's the idea, don't let it hang around. Get rid of it, do whatever you can to kill it. Bring it into the light, bring people in to know this sin tries to get me. How does, how does God, when Cain is furious with Abel, because Abel's sacrifice is uh, accepted and Cain's isn't, what does God say? God actually comes to Cain and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Its desire is for you. What happens right after that? It consumes him. It has him. He doesn't kill the anger. He uses it to kill his brother. So that's sin. Flee sexual morality. Flee sin. Why? Because, Paul says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 Every other sin a person commits uh, is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person uh, sins against his own body. Again, we gotta do some text correction here. Paul decided to jam all of the difficult Greek right in one verse, so get mad at Paul, don't get mad at me for all these things. Uh, There's a debate here. You'll notice your ESV has no quotes, meaning Paul's saying all of this. That's one view. There's another view that this, this first little chunk, every other sin a person commits is outside the body is a Corinthian quote that Paul's responding to. That's how I've rendered it in in the slide. That's actually what most scholars will say. If Paul is saying all of this, then it's a, again, doesn't really fit the context. Paul's saying somehow sexual sin is worse because it's against your body, but all other sins aren't. But what about suicide? It's very confusing and it's pretty random, but uh, I I think this is a quote and here's what uh, what I think the Corinthians are saying. First of all, The word other there in the English is not there in the Greek. That's added by your translators to try and clear it up. So I have a slide here that uh, doesn't have other and then has this quote. You say, O Corinthians, every sin a person commits is outside the body, but I say a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Again, remember the Corinthians' view of the person. You're a soul trapped in a body. The body doesn't matter. So this quote is most likely them saying, Sin, the body is morally neutral. Sin's out there. Every sin a person commits is outside the body because the body isn't even a part of my person. I'm a soul trapped in a body. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. Every other sin commits is outside the body. It doesn't matter what we do. And Paul's response is, again, not only is what you do with your body sin, but it's a self-inflicted wound. It's a self-inflicted wound wound and more than that he says in verse 19 do you not know again there it is do you not know do you not remember when I was with you that I taught you that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God there's the identity piece in uh, Exodus as we see Israel being led out of Egypt and God parks them at Mount Sinai he wants the tabernacle built why so that he can say I want to dwell in the midst of my people I don't wanna just be up on this mount. I wanna dwell in the midst of my people that they will know these are God's chosen people and there's a lot of rules and a lot of you know, sacrificial system, all these different things that have to happen in order for sinful people to dwell near a holy God. And as David or Solomon rather builds uh, the temple in Israel, the whole point is that is where heaven meets earth. The, the building where God's glory shines forth and we face our worship, it's meant to be the temple. That's all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the greatest indictment against Israel in the book of Ezekiel is that Ezekiel has this vision where God's presence leaves the temple. And in the New Testament, and here in this passage, we see this teaching that God's presence does not dwell in a building. That's why we don't call this God's house. It dwells in a people. 
Jesus doesn't talk about the temple being rebuilt. He says, I am the temple. Right? Members of his body are the temple. The third person of the Trinity dwells in us. We're no longer meant to look at a building and say, that's where God's glory shines forth. We're meant to look at his church, his people church, not the building church, his church, and say that's where God's presence dwells. So notice, Paul's not talking about health. This isn't the verse you know, of why you should not eat cake or smoke cigarettes. You cannot eat cake for health reasons, I guess, but just don't use this verse to do it, right? You're taking it out of context. People always use body's a temple, right? Protein shakes. It's not at all what Paul's saying. It's not even a sub-point, by the way. When you, this is a side rant. When you use this verse to say, be healthy, you're literally adding an extra law. You're committing the sin of legalism. So the verse is telling you, your body's a temple, so stay away from sin. You're using to sin. So don't do that, okay? Back to the sermon. Uh, Again, Paul is pointing to their identity. Do you see who you are? Don't you know who you are? God no longer says, I dwell in this place. He says, I dwell with these people. You are the temple. This body that you're using to go sin, that you think you can do whatever you want with, is the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And then lastly, verse 19 and 20, you are not your own you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. You're not your own. Here we see the real problem of the Corinthians. The real problem with the Corinthians isn't just crazy lust. It isn't just that they want to go to Vegas and you know, blow all their money and sleep around and all these different things. The real problem of the Corinthians is that they are their own God. This body's mine, I can do whatever I want. How much does this sound like our culture? No one's gonna tell me what to do with my body. No one's gonna tell me what to do with my money. I'm a self-made man. No one can tell me what to do. That is our culture, that's the Corinthians here. The problem is they are their own God. And what is Paul saying? You don't own you. You do not own you. He could have said, he doesn't, but he could have said, you're a creature created by the creator. So you have breath in your lungs because the creator is giving it to you. You clearly don't own you. He's keeping your heart beating. You're not your own, but that's not what he says. What does he say? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. If the Bible says all people are dead in their sins, yet Christians are somehow made alive, how? A price was paid, the very life of Jesus Christ so that we could have life. Do you see how, A, that robs you of any credit? You did nothing to lower your price. You were just bought. You were just a product on a shelf that was infinitely expensive. You're so sinful that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could have paid for you. Robs you of any credit of saving yourself. And do you also see how it robs you of any condemnation? If you sin as a Christian and you have the thought, oh, I need to atone for this. It's already been atoned for. You've already been bought. It robs you of any credit, it robs you of any condemnation, only produces worship. You're not your own, you were bought. And the last thing he says, so glorify God with your body. He's been saying what we shouldn't do this entire time. Here's the first thing he says, what we should do. Glorify God, why do you exist? To know, to magnify, to praise the name of our Lord, right? The Westminster Confession, What is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Your body isn't your own. Don't use it for sexual morality. Rather, your body is the Lord's and it's meant to glorify the one who gave his broken body for you. It's meant to glorify the one who shed his blood from his body for you.
That is what we're meant to do with our bodies. That's how he ends this passage. We don't use it for sin, we use it to glorify the one who gave his life for us. And so, as we close, if we're not careful, if you're just reading this passage through, I would imagine it's easy to miss the entire point of this sermon, of this uh, passage. It looks like a, a big word of condemnation. What is wrong with you? Supposed Christians, you're going and sleeping with prostitutes, what are you doing? Right, that's how many of us approach God. I, I, I've sinned and so I'm in shame. I need to clean myself up before I go to him. But Paul here, notice, is not giving them a word of condemnation. He's giving them a word of conviction that's meant to awaken joy. He's not saying, get it together. He's saying, because of the gospel that you've already received, because of the heart that has already been transformed, don't run back to these things. You're already a Christian. You've already been made new in Christ. So now flee, now glorify, be who you are. Jeff mentioned last week, the irony of our culture is our culture says, be who you are, meaning whatever your, your, your inner feelings desire. That's exactly what Paul is saying. You have a different, def, different definitions of identity. Be who, be who you are. You're a Christian who has the future hope of the resurrection. You've been united to the living God and the living God is dwelling inside of you. Be who you are. You did not clean yourself up before you came to Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Jesus Christ has seen you at your worst. The most shameful, the most disgusting sin you've ever committed or that you haven't committed yet, he has seen and much worse. You are far worse, I am far worse than we ever dare imagined, yet he has seen all of that and he said, yet for the joy set before me, I went to the cross. Don't run away from him in shame when you sin. He's taken your shame. Run to him, run to the Savior. That's how Paul ends it here. Glorify God with your body. Flee sexual morality because of who you are. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that this is true of us, that this is the reality of the gospel, that you have taken a heart of stone away and you've given us a heart of flesh. You've filled us with your spirit not just to say a status has changed, but you've brought us into a relationship where you, O oh God, are no longer a judge who is condemning us, but rather is a father whose arms we run into. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for the cross and the reality of our resurrection, the reality that we're united to the righteous one and the indwelling Holy Spirit. We pray that it would be the eyes by which we see the whole world that we would not see ourselves as shameful sinners, but rather we would see ourselves as, like Luther says, simultaneously justified yet a sinner, and we can glory in that. The more we see our sin, the more we see your grace. We love you and pray in Jesus' name, amen.